Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2. Uh, we're taking a brief break here from The Wise Man's Beard to discuss Patrick Rothfuss's Bass-centric short story, The Lightning Tree. The story first appeared in the 2014 anthology Rogues, edited by George R.R. R. Martin and Gardner Dojoy. And it's going to be receiving a standalone expanded release in November called The Narrow Road Between Desires. Given that, we figured it'd be fun to spend a few episodes talking about this original version so that we have something to compare the full release to later this autumn. Hope you enjoy! A little bit different, but a little bit the same. A brief explanation of the pod. This is going to be a little different from our normal format, as we are just looking at a chunk of the lightning tree and discussing it more generally. Hope you like it! Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. I think we're probably going to skip the Fernemos and for now also skip the recommended thing. If y'all have anything that you want to discuss with us regarding recommended things, Fernemos for this book, or any other kingkiller fantasy, other such thing related things, we have a Discord and we are semi active on it, mostly posting memes. Lots of memes. Also some cat pictures. Also updates on our bedroom renovation. Yeah, that's been taking up a lot of cycles of late. Which explains a little bit as to why we didn't make it very far in the lightning tree. We bought the book that it's in, which is called Rogues, which is appropriate that it's a Bass story, yesterday. Although I've had it on Audible forever, and I think you've had it as a ebook for a while. Yeah. We went to our local independently owned bookstore. Hooray for Powell's. And picked up a copy that somebody sold that was actually a library book. Yeah, they bought it from a library in East Rutherford, New Jersey. So to all of our New Jersey fans, we see you. <laughs> also, as per usual, our disclaimers and spoiler warnings are ahead. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher.books or whoever published Rogues. Who published Rogues? I think it was... Phantom. Yeah. Cool. We're not affiliated with them either. Second, we are spoiling this entire story. You have been warned. Also, word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of these worlds that we love to explore. Thanks. So uh, let's dive in. To be honest, we have been kind of inundated with a home improvement project and have very few cycles and spoons and whatever to devote to our normal reading. Also, we're anticipating a huge trip that Will has to do for work that will take up all of October. And so our plan is currently to make it through the lightning tree and record all of them and get them out and you might not even notice a disruption. But this time around, we didn't have a whole lot of time to read. So we read, or listened to in my case, approximately seven pages, eight pages, something like that in the hardcover version of this book. The book itself or the 
novella itself is only about 60 pages. We're currently planning on this taking about four episodes. Yeah, I'd say it's more of a short story than a novella. Fair enough, it will become a novella. Yeah. Hopefully it's all written and in the process of being printed or close to. We shall find out. But it is supposed to come out on your birthday. Happy birthday to me. Yes. Let's get started. So obviously this is a Bast story and starts off with mourning the narrow road. It's basically a day in the life of Bast, such as it is, <laughs> and begins with him trying to sneak out of the waystone. He had actually made it outside, both feet over the threshold. He almost has the door shut. And both calls out to him. I mean, anyone who's played an RPG knows that no matter how high you roll, someone can always roll higher. Unless it's a nat 20. Unless they also roll a nat 20. And, and then, then it's just contested. Yeah, and then it's who has the highest base stat. And what we know about Quoth, at least as far as he's been set up in the King Killer universe, he's the best at everything. He's got 18s across the board. And where they aren't 18s, they're 20s. I've never been able to have an, a 20 in anything. Really? Yeah, in any of my stats. None of my characters have ever been able to have a 20. Really? Yeah, it's use an array or... Or roll however many and knock off the top and the bottom. Even with 46 drop below, you never got a 20. Mm. Ah, well. Anyway, <laughs> digressions aside, mostly it seems like all Kvothe is doing is just some light trolling and errand work for him. That is true. But in this case, it's like, you forgot your book. Uh. Oh, you're missing your book. I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun because... Bass is like doing a mental kind of checklist of, okay, so I know that this particular board squeaks and I know that this hinge is a little bit rusty and I know that this blah, 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 blah. I didn't make a single noise. How did he know that I was leaving? Yeah, but he knows. I actually kind of have a theory about this, which is that I think that Quoth basically has a genius loci for the waystone itself, like the walls of it specifically, he is attuned to. So anything that happens within it, he is aware of it. And whether he acts on it is a different story. I mean, my theory is similar as well. Like he's got some sort of ward along all of the exits. Yeah, that seems like his sort of thing. So he knows if something comes in and he knows if something goes out, specifically best. And I think he's very strategic about letting Bast think that he can sneak out from time to time. Yes. Now, an interesting thing happens between different readers. Nick Padell pronounces the name of the book differently than the audiobook reader for Rogues. Oh? Yeah. Kellum Tintore, I think, or something like that, is what Nick Padell does. I thought it was Kellum Tintore. That's what I kind of said. I thought you said Tinture. <laughs> I haven't listened to the book in a while. Fair. But this guy says Salem Tincture. And it's just weird. And I didn't actually realize it was the same book title for the longest time. I actually don't think I registered that it was the same book title till I read the story in an actual physical book instead of listening to it. The first one, 
because I'm like, wait, wait, what? Yeah, I, I think Patrick Rothfuss was probably less involved in the production of this particular audiobook because of the anthology nature. Maybe. Though Nick Padell also pronounces Elodin as Elodin, so it might not have been really a Patrick Rothfuss in charge of thing. I think likely it was probably the least bad take. Probably. Anyway. The other thing is there's a brief comment that someone named the Williams boy stopped by looking for Bast, but didn't leave a message. So that will probably become important later. Knowing Patrick Rothfuss, there is no accidental mention of anything. So next, we see Bast going up to a gravestone and the titular lightning tree, where he meets with two children. The first of these is Bran, the baker's youngest son. And can I just make an aside here? Like, come on, bakers. What the hell? Why are you naming your children Grain? <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to mention something about the name Bran also, is that I find it very funny that because it's a fantasy story, we cannot possibly have a Brandon. Like, it's not a shortened version of any name normally that I've heard, especially with people in the generation that these writers are in. But I see it as names in loads of fantasy stories. I mean... Technically, Brandon the Builder is a mythic character from the Game of Thrones series. Right, but like they always use a shortened version. The reason I think that Brandon the Builder exists is because we already had Bran, and we had to kind of figure out lineage backwards. And so that's when George R. R. Martin is just like, fine, his name is Brandon. You should see Brandon. He's getting so big now. He uses Lake Ontario as a hot tub. Explain your references. This is a long ago Sklarbro country joke from Jason and Randy Sklar. They're a pair of comedians and they would joke with their Canadian comedic buddy, John Doerr, about this guy who would always tell them about how Brandon is doing. You should see Brandon. It's, it's lived rent-free in my head for years now. Going on a decade, at least. But anyway. Y'all know what I live with now. What I'm trying to say, though, is that I don't really care that Brandon shows up as a name. I care that Bran keeps showing up in fantasy novels as a name. Because we need to have something that sounds vaguely not like English. But vaguely English. I mean... George R. R. Martin named several of the Tullys literally Grover, Elmo, and Kermit, so... Now that you point that out... I'm saying there are certain names that we don't necessarily think of as high fantasy because they're so normal, <laughs> but... Kermit. Or Brandon. <laughs> or Brandon, yes. Anyway... And also, within the larger Song of Ice and Fire universe, there's also Brynden Tully, Brynden Rivers. Lots of reused sounds of names. There's Brendans and Brandons, and yeah, Brands. And Brand Stark is actually, again, short for Brandon. I'm aware that that's the case. I'm not saying that I have a problem with the fact that Brandon does actually exist. I am saying <laughs> that the name Bran does not really 
show up in like our world very much. Except for the drummer of Mastodon, who, I mean, he spells it that way, but it's he pronounces it Braun. So maybe he's short for Brondendaler. Now you're just taking the piss. Of course I am. <laughs> this is about rogues. We're having fun. <laughs> Are we? I mean, you're laughing. That's true. I'm encouraging him, everybody. Anyway, let's go back to the five pages we read. <laughs> and you're wondering why we didn't get so far. <laughs> right. We're a little bit punchy. We have spent the last three weeks inhaling paint fumes. You should see Brandon right now. Oh, God. Anyway. <laughs> so, Bran, the baker's son, has a request for Bast. He needs a lie after cutting his hand while playing with his mother's knives. Well, you know what? The kid already proved that he's not very smart by playing with the knives. But he's also proving that he's not very smart because he is also unable to think of a lie on his own that explains why he had one of his mom's knives and he was being stupid with it. I will also say that this makes a convincing argument against corporal punishment because he is more afraid of his mom hurting him than he is of being able to come clean and tell the truth about what he did. Psychologically, though, a lot of younger people, when they are faced with this particular predicament, will hide their wrongdoings if they know that they weren't supposed to do it in the first place. But I do also hate the idea of physical punishment. And especially in this case, like, he had his physical punishment. He hurt his hand. Honestly, at that point, anything that his mom does to hurt him, because she's going to birch him or whatever, hit him with a birch switch, all that does is it says that it is not safe to tell my parents the truth. So I can't be too mad about the kid for wanting to lie to his parents because his parents aren't safe to tell the truth to. You have a very good point. Like, I grew up, my dad spanked me a few times. He was quite a bit older when I was born. He was in his late 50s. And... It was something he'd grown up with as a thing that was acceptable, like more to embarrass your kid than necessarily to hurt them. But in no way, if I'm already upset, is embarrassing me or swatting me or spanking me going to help that situation. And I can't see that helping any kid through a situation where they are acting out or have done something that they are embarrassed about or ashamed to tell their parents about. I can't see how that's helpful after the fact. And I also don't think that it's a deterrent. Right. All it teaches them is don't get caught. That is the biggest thing it teaches. Mm -hmm. Because it's not teaching them that, oh yeah, playing with knives is dumb or is a bad idea. What it says is getting caught playing with knives is dumb. Mm -hmm. So... Naturally, the kid asks for a lie, and I gotta say, yeah, that's the rational play right there. Unfortunately. You've learned not to play with knives because you hurt yourself. There's no sense getting mom mad at you and having her beat you. Same thing with touching the oven or doing any other number of things that people and your parents especially have told you not to. Yeah, the punishment isn't making you a better person here. It's not making you kinder, smarter more wise. All it's doing is saying, oh, getting caught sucks. So I'm just going to get better at not getting caught. 
and you're not going to be more honest. You're not going to be smarter. So anyway, the lie that Bass concocts is you thought you saw a big black rat. It scared you. You threw a knife at it and cut yourself. Yesterday, one of the other children, one you didn't like, told you a story about rats chewing off soldiers' ears and toes while they slept. Gave you nightmares. That kind of gives me nightmares. Honestly, this is probably part of it. Like, it has to be something that is so unsettling that it'll be believable when he says it. Yeah, I don't like that. But at the same time, I yeah. Of course, the price for uh, Bast's services, because there's always a price, because he's one of the Fae, is first he asks for a secret, which all the kid can think of is Old Lance Tupping the Widow Creel, which everyone's known for years. Kind of an open secret at that point. I'd say that this book has an overabundance of sexual content, mostly because Bast himself seems to have one thing that he can focus on, and that's generally sexual in nature. He has fun with it. No shame on that, but it's just like, in comparison to where we are in the wise man's sphere, at least he's not boastful and kind of like icky about it. He's more like, this is kind of playful and I like teasing them. If they're kind of consenting or if this is pleasurable or if this is something that is like coaxing them to do something that they would like to do in the first place. I don't mind the depictions of how he talks about women and thinks about women because he is one of the Fae. They are a very carnal people and it doesn't feel ooky to me, at least at first. I think part of it is, as much as we can see so far, is everyone seems to be practicing campsite rules, which is to say they're leaving their partners better than they found them. Now, the open secrets about who's having sex with who, I don't really care about gossip. Gossip is stupid. Also, seriously, if they're consenting adults, who cares? Now, if they're not consenting adults and or somebody is cheating and or somebody is just not involving their partner in what's going on in their lives if they have decided to take another partner. Eh. But we don't know that that's the case. Anyway, with that secret not really being worth anything, Bast basically goes full Gollum. He says, what has it got in its pockets? <laughs> and after going through some random crap that Bran pulls out of his pockets, Bast ends up coming away with a piece of string and a greenish stone, as well as the promise of two sweet buns later in the afternoon. I don't know how to feel about Bast's extracurricular activity of swindling children. It really does kind of remind me of... So John Hodgman had a uh, short-lived animated series on Hulu where he basically plays a grown-up boy detective who goes around town with his old school-age bully, and they act as, again, boy detectives. So they solve mysteries for high school students and elementary school students. Incredibly low-stakes mysteries, in other words. Like, this is a very low-stake lie. And I think, again, what's making this not feel terribly ooky is that he's helping this kid not get beaten. Yeah. And so while lying to the adults is not great, it's better than the kid getting hurt by the adults. Like I say, the kid's making the rational decision based on what's going on here. So there is one other thing that I noticed that was kind of interesting. He smelled of sweat and fresh bread and something else, something out of place. 
What do you think was the something out of place? Hmm. There's a couple things I can think of. Blood, because he caught himself. And also iron, because he's got a couple iron shims in his pocket, which Bast has to be very careful to avoid touching. But is that actually out of place? Because if he's got any currency, it's not likely to be anything more than an iron shim. True. But something out of place might be the blood. And maybe something else that we'll find out about later. Maybe. I don't remember the story well enough to know. I haven't gotten very far in it either, so I'm just sticking a pin in this because it may be something that bears fruit. No accidents and all that. Is this actually your first time reading it? All the way through, yeah. All right. So next up, we have a slightly older boy in tattered homespun named Kale Allard. He wants secret revenge on his brother for kissing Greta behind the old mill. He's got a crush on Greta. Okay, so they do point out very clearly that the boy's clothes are more than just a little tattered. It goes to the world building of Noir is very, very economically depressed. Like, not for nothing, but... You can always tell the places around town, in wherever you go, that are a little less well-off. Because you'll see more dollar stores, or you'll see more things that are catering to people who need a lower cost for regular household items. Versus the places that are more affluent. You'll also notice a lack of trees. Yep. Yeah, like we know that Noir does not really do a whole lot of trade. So most of the items that people have are things that either they can make themselves or they can trade with someone local. So they don't have a whole lot of dyes. They don't have a whole lot of things that can't be made out of the local wool. They also need to wear their things out, especially the ones that are like families that have a less desirable trade. What's interesting is, like, Allard isn't really something associated with a particular trade. You know, normally you would have people who have last names based on their trade. Baker or Fletcher or... Cooper or Taylor mm -hmm. or Smith. You know, all of these things. Or Shepard or... What have you. Yeah. And Allard doesn't really fit with any particular trade that I can think of. But well, let's go ahead and go on. It looks like this boy has been through the ringer. He's got blood crusted on one nostril and a split lip. Looks like he got in a fight with his brother for his brother essentially kissing a girl that he has a crush on after he's told his brother that he had a crush. And we're really only getting one side of the story here. And also he's 10. He's 10. We don't know what the state is between the brother and Greta, because it's entirely possible that the older brother and Greta had been together before Kale said anything. Also, let's not treat Greta as a possession. Right. Greta can kiss who she wants. Right. And I hope that she made the choice. Let her get her kisses in if that's what she wants. And that's about it, because apparently this kid is a kid. So... We're going to have everything be chaste and in Heartstopper rules, where you don't have sexual relations between minors. Right. We don't know how much older the older brother is. We don't know how old Greta is. It's entirely possible it's a case of, I have a crush on my babysitter. Right. Yeah. So anyway, he asked for a small secret revenge. 
I did kind of enjoy the dickering on how big this revenge needs to be. <laughs> the size of a cat. Or maybe a small dog's worth, like one of the Benton's dogs. And Bass' recommendation here is take a cup of urine and then let it sit out for a day or two just to get kind of denatured a little bit and concentrated. And then when your target puts his shoes out to dry by the fire, pour just a little bit of urine, not enough to make a puddle, but just enough to make them damp. So then it'll get dried out by the fire, but it'll just kind of get seeped into there. It's not going to smell anything. Yet. Yet. I'm just sitting here with like the most disgusted. Blech. However, as soon as the brother's feet get sweaty, he'll start to smell like piss. And if he steps in a puddle, he'll smell like piss. When he walks in the snow, he'll smell like piss. And it'll be hard for him to figure out exactly where it's coming from. But everyone will know that your brother is the one that reeks. I'm guessing your Greta isn't going to want to kiss the boy who can't stop pissing himself. Okay, A, not Kale's Greta. Greta is her own person. B, that's really mean considering like we just had the discussion of this family's not very well off. He's going to be stuck with piss shoes for a long time. Right, exactly. Especially if his feet aren't growing any longer. Right. Ugh. Yeah, like I say, this could be the case of a 10-year-old falls in love with his 16-year-old babysitter who actually has a thing for his older brother who is also age-appropriate for her. Yes. Like, what a snot-nosed little punk. Man, the older we get, the more likely we are to just not sympathize with the kid protagonist. Kid protagonists suck. Give me sensible, reasonable adult protagonists any day. Yeah, except you're expecting that the adult protagonist is going to be sensible or reasonable. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, though. Most adults end up having to put up with this kind of nonsense, and how would they be reasonable after all of that? Fair enough. However, I can accept really stupid decisions from a child protagonist that I cannot possibly accept out of an adult protagonist. And that's actually what's made me want to chuck books across the room is when we've got somebody who is ostensibly an adult making the dumbest choices. Yes. Anyway, all of this sounds like a problem that he's chosen to have. It does. And now he's making it his brother's problem. So the price for this petty revenge advice is a wild beehive off past the Orison's place and the location of Crazy Martin's still. Because Bast enjoys himself some moonshine. I mean, there's not a whole lot else to do here in Noir. No. Get inebriated, chase girls. Kind of wander the hillsides. We can only wander the hillsides for so long before we go a little stir-crazy. Clean the inn. Yeah, but see, anything is better than chores. True, and the inn is immaculate. So it's just chores. And it's just like a lot of little finishing touches. Like, you can spend all freaking day doing just tiny little things that yield very little measurable value like sweeping the outdoors yeah which we've done on a camping trip yeah i think we've complained about that before chores outside so before he leaves kale reveals that reich has a message for bast just he wants to see you and bast's response is he knows the rules tell him no kale kind of shrugs and says yeah i already told reich this but I'll, I'll repeat it again if I run into him. We don't know who Reich is. I don't know if this is the same one as the Williams boy or whatever. Almost certainly. You know what it, it's really getting in here? Bast is basically like playing a twisted advice columnist for these kids. That's messed up. 
That's very messed up. Yep, messed up. So then we get to perhaps the most important piece of this story. And this is something that I want to spend some time on. I think it's very important to me and to you. Well, you may not like this part of it as much, but so after seeing the boys off, Bass then goes rambling around the countryside for a little bit and he enjoys some wild raspberries. So this is concrete proof that Pat is on the side of raspberries in that raspberries versus cherries debate. I won't hear any arguments. I win. Raspberries are the superior fruit or droop. Let's get back to the story, shall we? Let's let's talk a bit about Bast enjoying the raspberries, okay? Because I think this is really important. I think it reveals something about how Bast enjoys that sort of tartness to them, that that texture that they have, the way that there's all these multiple facets to them. There's all those little seeds, right? All of these little things that could bear fruit later on down the line. I think that's really important. I think really what we know here is raspberries are clearly superior in every way. We don't know that Pat thinks this. We know that Bast thinks this. And Bast is fictional. But Pat made a decision. He could have picked any fruit for Bast to enjoy, and he picked raspberries. Why do you think that is? Because they're common and seasonal? Actually, they're not. They're actually very rarely seen in the wild. You might hear things about wild strawberries and things like that, but very rarely do you hear about wild raspberries. I think this was a deliberate choice. I think Pat is definitely a raspberry appreciator. The world may never know. Anyway, moving on. He finds a convenient tree to ditch Kellum Tintore in. That will come back, though not in this episode. And then kind of goes wandering off down the bluff. So he ends up making himself a small set of shepherd's pipes and then proceeds to play them for a young shepherdess. But she seems to not notice Bast or his music at all. So I get the distinct impression that he kind of gets off on manipulation more than the actual, like, trying to form a relationship. He likes to play puppeteer. He likes the flirtation. He likes eliciting a reaction. But in this case, he's a secret puppeteer. He's not actively letting her know that her actions are being kind of chosen for her. But he likes all the little, her skirt rode up, or she looks like she's relaxing and finding the sheep to be funny. So I read that a little differently. Hmm. So he plays a little bit and he hopes she hears it and is responding positively to it. And then she kind of does some things that make him think that maybe she doesn't notice me at all. No, I don't read it at all like that. I read it as he is a fake creature and this is kind of a peep show for him. Mm, I think it can be two things. I don't think she's aware. Yeah, we don't know that his song is human audible. I'm saying that I'm not sure that she's aware that her actions are being manipulated. Or observed. Oh, I really don't think that she's aware that her actions are being observed. But ultimately, he's not getting her to do anything that's lurid. He's kind of getting her to be the flirtatious creature for his voyeurism. Yeah, that's fair. Like, almost the equivalent of 
ooh la la, I saw their ankle. There is a little of that. None of it's like I made her touch herself inappropriately for my pleasure. It was more all these little tiny details that are cute and sexy. And now she feels better at the end of everything. She feels content. She feels like happy emotions or at least satisfied emotions without having to be explicit or have her do things that are uncomfortable. I wonder if there will be more to this interaction than just a brief encounter. Like we don't even get her name. Like she's just the shepherdess and there's no dialogue or anything like that at all. So I'm wondering if there will be anything to deepen this. I mean, at least for now, it's kind of this cute little flirtation, almost like pan with the pipes. It's very fey feeling like it's not it, again, like, I don't want to make it sound like I think it's ooky. I actually think it's kind of cute and flirtatious as long as he's not manipulating her into doing things explicit or against what she would want to be doing. Like, he's not specifically taking her hand and making it go places or something like that. He's bringing her a little smile and a chuckle and kind of influencing her mood to be more flirtatious, more cute more sexy and for all we know she's playing along too yeah i will say though that the fae tend to have a um laissez-faire attitude towards consent true so not sure we'll circle back to this if it comes back up so that let's go ahead and move on to our seven words i had words from the books so i had a number of options here first would you mind picking up some eggs which i think you've probably said to me at least once or twice accurate that's from Quoth to Bast when Bast is trying to leave and Quoth is like, hi, errands. There's also, I was playing with my mom's knives. Which is so stupid. Also, can you work up a good cry? Eh. Then we've got, what have you got in your pockets? That I think is funny. And then, he knew I was sweet on her. Eh. I wasn't wild about that one. Then my favorite was, he knows the rules, tell him no. He knows the rules, tell him no is... Yeah. So, seven words from life. What do you have? As I talked about last time, we have a Trello board full of how to get our renovation project done. And we have some reminders to one another on that. And we also tend to quote TV shows and or things that we watch pretty often. And I mean, the whole thing with the Sklar Brothers thing with with brandon he's so big or whatever you should see brandon right now don't you know john door he's gotten so big yeah that well one of the things that we have been saying recently got put into the trello board as one of our core tenants because we need to tell each other like hey make sure you drink water hey make sure you stop and eat hey make sure that we're taking care of ourselves no headaches while we're working all these other things and so I'm going to say my seven words are, don't ever forget, I forkin love you. Well, I forkin love you too. Because I don't know if any of you have ever gone through like a two-person renovation DIY project. It's really easy to get stuck in on the project. And if anything goes wrong or takes longer than you wanted or is harder than you wanted, 
or more difficult than you anticipated or any of these other things. But it's all too easy to lash out at the person that you're working with. And one of our core tenants needed to be to remind each other that we love each other and that that's what this whole thing is about. And it is a quote from Dimension 20. It is from The Seven. And it's Izzy and Brennan yelling back and forth, I forking love you. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you can own the frustration and then you can shout that and then also kind of recenter that the frustration is not about the other person. It is about this particular situation. It doesn't change the fact that we both deeply love each other, even as we're annoyed that painting sucks or we're annoyed at having to do all the sanding or we're annoyed <laughs> that we dropped a hammer on a foot or whatever. Or a piece of extra flooring. Yeah. Point is, it's just a good reminder. So with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we continue talking more about the lightning tree. Not sure how much of it we're going to get through, but we'll get through some of it. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we enjoy exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination such as it is, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Since no one is currently signed up for getting the extra podcast about the Sandman, we've kind of put that on hold. Again, spoons, renovations, things, energy, priorities, stuff. Should anyone actually sign up for that tier, we shall continue it. But for now, we're just content to enjoy the media that we enjoy. Yeah, we don't have to mine everything for content. It's actually kind of liberating. Yeah, stick to one story. Well, with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. I am inundated with tentacle kitties. Surrounded. Surrounded by tentacle kitties.